0: Nation Reaching Nations is focused on highlighting innovative stories from cross-cultural local and global missions, missions from the majority world and culturally contextual teaching. The missionaries' stories and idea of this podcast are based on connecting through Houston and serve as an example of how the gospel is spreading from everywhere to everywhere. Our hope is that the stories that you hear on this podcast will help equip you to reach those around you. Hey
1: everybody, welcome back to the program. My name is Brian. Uh, As most of you know, I work in a number of multi-ethnic contexts. I teach at a multi-ethnic school, I'm on staff at a multi-ethnic church, we live in a multi-ethnic neighborhood, our girls go to multi-ethnic schools, and so uh, just, just living cross-culturally, living internationally, even though we're local still, is a big part of our life. Uh, some of the things I've done in the past, I've been able to get a window into how people see the world, and so I used to look at strategy plans for church plants, and of course, uh, multi-ethnic ministry is a big hot topic today. Uh, particularly uh, as we see what's happening in the media around our country right now. Um, The church is is trying to respond, but I think a lot of the plans that I saw, not that they were bad plans per se, but they might have just been a little bit glib in terms of their image of kind of a romanticized multi-ethnic ministry was kind of one part hipster and one part global cafe and you know a little Acts 29 thrown in. And I think the reality of multi-ethnic ministry uh, is very, very different. I think there's some some beautiful benefits that it has, and there's some really difficult challenges that people need to think through. And uh, today I have a guest uh, joining me. He is uh, Jonathan Williams. He's the pastor, the senior pastor of Wilcrest Baptist Church. And so technically he's my boss, so I'm going to ask questions that make him look good. Um, that's, that's rule number one, right? And uh, he has a P- he just graduated the PhD in family ministry from Southwestern Seminary. He was a missionary with the IMB for a number of years in Peru, back in the jungle. Uh, and he's the executive director of Gospel Family. There's a book by that same title. And so if you're looking for practical ways for family worship, uh, you can check out the website and the book there. Jonathan, hey. uh, thank you for coming on the show, man.
2: Yeah, this is great. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm so, you you know, you heard the intro there. I'm sure you've seen... Young guys probably have asked you for advice, I'm sure, over the years of, hey, I'm going to start a multi-ethnic church and it's going to be this and this and this. And it's just like, it's this picture that's not reality, probably like marriage, right? Where people are like, oh, <laughs> yes. you know, it's going to be amazing. We're never going to fight. And the honeymoon's going to last the whole time. And you're like, well,
2: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think the expectation, the reality, a lot of times are very different, right? And you have these expectations of what it's going to be, whether it's, it's going to be easy uh, whether it's going to be tough at the beginning but then get easy. Uh, but the reality, of course, is a lot different on, on the ground. And I, I love the heart. I love it when people say they want to pursue multi-ethnic ministry. They want to be intentional in that. I love that heart. I love that vision. Uh, but then it's kind of just being aware of uh, how prayerful that journey is going to be, how challenging that journey is going to be, and that it's a, it's a long road, it, and it's not an easy path.
1: Yeah, so a lot of uh, a lot of people have come here, and you know, friends of either of ours, and have probably told us both how lucky we are to be here. And I know that we do, you know, we do this job because God has called us here, and we really love what we do, and that's probably what keeps us here. Um, but there's also a lot of challenges that are are represented in ministries like these. But I think a lot of people get into multi ethnic ministry because it seems uh, it's kind of the trend, right? Uh, you know, we're we're watching demographics, and and we've got our our finger on the pulse of our city, so to speak. And and, and, I, and I'm not saying this in a bad way. I think it's good that people should be paying attention to what's happening in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, but what do you think about that as a basis for doing multi ethnic ministry?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Like you said, yeah, obviously we need to pay attention to our diet demographics and the, d- the dynamics of our neighborhood and that's part of the conversation but I think if the demographics is the main thing driving that vision for multi-ethnic Ministry then we're, we're kind of off a little bit mm-hmm. um, you know one is if that's the case and that would mean that any context that not diverse that doesn't even need to be a conversation whereas I would say even when uh, context is not diverse it still needs to be part of the conversation Uh, But the demographics don't drive our passion for multi-ethnic ministry. The scriptures drive that vision, right? So in the gospel, we see this, uh, you know, God's heart for the nations. In the gospel, we see the Great Commission. In the gospel, we see passages like Ephesians 2 and Galatians 3 and Matthew 28, all these scriptures that just show that uh, the church is supposed to be diverse, supposed uh, to represent the nations and represent Christ's heart for the nations and doing that. And so the demographics sometimes might make it a little bit more challenging. If you're in a place that's not that diverse, it might make it a little bit more exciting. If you're in Houston, mm-hmm. you know, one of the most diverse cities in America, then yeah, it, it is a little bit more exciting, a little bit more fun, maybe trying to reach uh, a couple of hundred nations in our city. Uh, but that isn't the catalyst for why that's our vision Um, there's a pastor up north, Eric Mason, and he says diversity isn't a mission. You know, it's not a model. It's not just one way of doing church. Um, He says diversity is a result of faithful mission in a diverse context. And what he means is if you're in a diverse context and you're just faithful to the Great Commission, you're intentional to reaching the nations, then diversity will be a result, not because that's the model you chose. Right. Uh, but because that's the result of just being faithful to the Great Commission.
1: Right, right. Yeah, that's good. So let's let's dive down into challenges. I have four that I want us to discuss today. Worship, transience, racism, and leadership. Oh, well, that's all. Go. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, so so let's talk about transience. I, I think um, when people are thinking multi-ethnic church, they're forgetting one reason why many cities in particular are multi-ethnic is because – uh, people are coming in mm-hmm. from all over the world. That's certainly Houston's sure. uh, context, where one in four Houstonians uh, in the metroplex is foreign born, and in particular neighborhoods, you know that number goes up to eighty or ninety percent. Mm. Um, but what they don't get is the transients, and I know for you as a pastor, in terms of discipleship, in terms in probably in terms of all these other categories, transients impacts that. So, what are the ways that transients is a is a challenge for you? Uh, as a pastor or a challenge for the church?
2: Yeah, there is a challenge there. And then I'll also just say a word of uh, something you and I both talked a lot about that we've learned over the years is how to maybe see that challenge as a blessing or as an opportunity, right? And so the challenge is that people are here for a short time, a lot of times, and then God moves. them. And like you said, you have people who come from other countries maybe to study. And then after they finish their studies, they might move back home. Uh, People might come as a refugee. And then later as they resettle, they resettle somewhere else. Uh, People come on a visa. And then later that visa expires, they go back home. And so our community is very transient. I remember when I first came to uh, Wilcrest, the church where we were at, uh, almost 10 years ago, There's a man that I started meeting with, started discipling. We would go to McDonald's for breakfast just about every other week. And uh, we're trying to raise him up as a leader. We're trying to build this relationship together. I'm enjoying our time together tried to disciple him. He was from Liberia. And after about five months of just being all in and pursuing that friendship and uh, enjoying that discipleship, God moved him back to Liberia. Mm. We're eating biscuits, went aboard at McDonald's, and he says, I'm going to Liberia. And I said, for how long? He said, no, I'm moving back. And he did. Now, in his case, he moved back for about five or six years, and then God brought him back to Houston, back to Willcrest. And so we've seen that a lot of times you'll be – you know discipling someone you're maybe even raising up leaders in the church uh diverse leadership and then god moves them uh but one thing that i know your heart your passion for is to say all right if we're going to have them for six months if they're going to be here for two years right. let's equip them let's love them let's disciple them and then if god sends them let's send them out with maybe a, a renewed passion or renewed vision mm-hmm. for multi-ethnic ministry wherever god sends them next." and Uh, So I think that's helped uh, me, you know, see that challenge as an opportunity. Okay, if God's moving them in and out, then we we have this little window to just disciple them and love them, equip them. But then we get to be part of sending them. And that's actually kind of a blessing.
1: Yeah, you really have to shift your perspective. It has to be much less about me and my kingdom. Yes. You know, the Wilcrest kingdom, the Southern Baptist kingdom, the and it has to be much more about the kingdom, capital K kingdom. Mm. Um, Absolutely. You know, because like that example with Liberia, you know, you poured into him for years. <laughs> and if you're looking at your own kingdom, you'd go, well, it's a loss now that he's gone. Mm. Even if he never came back, though, if you're looking at the big kingdom, I mean, how many pastors have the opportunity to disciple people from so many countries? Right, and see them go back as missionaries. Absolutely, you know, like that—that's a a lifetime of work, again and again and again, that you just get to multiply out throughout the world, which is oh. pretty cool.
2: And I'll tell you, this year, you know, we're 2020 in the year of COVID, and so right now our services are online, and we do these streaming Facebook Live services on Sunday morning. And what's been neat about that is seeing some of the people who used to be members of Wilcrest. Mm-hmm who God has moved overseas, as we're doing these Facebook Live services, they're online, they're streaming, they're, you know, telling testimonies and stories about where they're at. And it is, you get to be part of uh, what God's doing all around the world as you send out your church families. Uh, So that, yeah, it turns into a great blessing. And I love what you said about it being about the kingdom and not just what we have going on right here.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we're a big Bible Belt city on the one hand. On the other hand, we're you know, one in four foreign born. We have every major religion and a lot of the minor religions represented not just in Houston, but even just our community sure. locally. Um, I know every pastor in Houston wants their church to be strong, healthy, wants, and probably wants their numbers to grow. We have a lot of megachurches in Houston. Yeah. Um, how does Transience impact your growth as a, a church?
2: Yeah, that's challenging. The The pastor before me at Wilcrest was Rodney Wu, and uh, I'm sure I'll talk more about him today on the podcast, but uh, Rodney's the one that cast this multi vision with the church, and he was here for 18 years and uh, kind of led our church to become
1: multi-ethnic.
2: You know, it went from being a, a homogeneous church to a church of 44 nations by the time he moved to Singapore. And during that time, he wrote a book called The Color of Church, and The Color of Church, it tells the story of Wilcrest, but it also just gives kind of the theology, the philosophy, even the practical uh, vision of a multi-ethnic ministry. And in The Color of Church, he tells a story about one year when he was here at Wilcrest. They had 100 new members that year. 100 people joined the church. Our wow. church is not a big church, so that's a huge uh, year. And he said the attendance on Sunday morning stayed about the same. Wow, And it's because of how transient it is. So, yes, we added 100 new members. We had so many people moving in and out uh, that the Sunday morning attendance kind of looked the same. We had a year uh, about six, seven years ago here at Wilcrest. It it is an awesome year of just evangelism, discipleship, and uh, growth. I think we had 35 people give their life to the Lord, get baptized, and we had about 50 new people joining the church that year. And I saw the same thing. The Sunday morning attendance increased by about four or five, you know, and, and and so you do have to constantly ask the Lord to give you, like you said, his perspective and his vision. It can't just be uh, we want to have a large attendance. We want to have a large church. It really does have to be uh, this passion just to say, I want to make disciples of the nations. And if we have them for six months or 16 years, we want to be faithful in that ministry. And if God sends them, we want to be able to be a part of that sending. Uh-huh. You know, we don't fight that. We don't push against that. We don't grieve that. We celebrate that. We, uh, Since you've been here uh, on staff, uh, you, you're also our associate pastor. You're our missions pastor. And so you've had a lot of opportunities where you bring people up on a Sunday morning, pray over them, lay hands right. over them, and then send them out. Right. And that's always an exciting time. And I think now our church is used to that where we expect to be sending constantly
1: yeah yeah you're right from a missions perspective that's that's just a, the norm if you're a mobilizer you know you you're looking for people who might not be thinking about missions or and you you know pour into them and then the goal is and you should go out and do this yes but it's also very different when you're also thinking but how do we keep a you know i mean not that numbers is the only metric but it does it does take some numbers to keep everything going and so and it's it's childish, just a challenge.
2: Because, you know, the way the Lord would have it, of course, it's usually some of your strongest leaders that the Lord sends out, you know. and uh, But I always think back to Acts, you know. In Acts 11, Barnabas goes down to Antioch and, you know, is really encouraged by what he sees in this multi-ethnic ministry going on in Antioch. He brings Paul over, and they become sort of the lead teachers, the lead pastors there in Antioch for years. And then you get to Acts 13, and the Spirit— sends them out. He doesn't just send anybody out, he takes their leaders, uh, two of their strongest teachers, pastors, leaders, and sends them, but you don't see Antioch grieving that. You don't see Antioch pushing back, fighting, offering Paul a raise so that he'll stay. You see them laying hands on them and joyfully sending them out. And then a few chapters later, what do they get to experience the blessing of is Paul and Barnabas returning after that missionary journey, getting to tell them. And so I think Uh, All of us, of course, I think any healthy church has that desire to be equipping, to be sending, and then to get to celebrate those testimonies and stories about what God's doing around the world.
1: So you and I grew up at a time when the church in America was going through a transition, and that was largely being seen in the way that people worship. Hmm. And I know for myself growing up in traditional hymn-based churches and uh, you know, I've been on staff as a music minister for a church that was wanting to you know transition more to a blended service. Yeah, you know how controversial that was, even though we're you know we're still dealing with one culture. We're kind of dealing with two sort of subcultures within that one culture. And so probably everybody that's listening to this has has seen some version of the worship war in some way or another, whether it's, you know, clothing, can we wear, you know, can girls wear pants and can they wear shorts? and how short is too short? And uh, can Christians date? And there's there's all these different ways that we try to figure out, you know, what's the cultural line? And yet in worship at a multi-ethnic church, now, you know, we're dealing with 50 nations here. Yeah. What are the challenges of yeah. trying to navigate everyone's expectation for worship?
2: Oh, yeah, there's so much about that. You know, you talk about when we were growing up and sort of that battle. Uh, my dad's a pastor, too, and I remember when we were growing up. You know, we were doing a lot of hymns. My mom was actually the one. She was the minister of music leading the worship. Uh, but we also started to do some of the newer praise songs. And, and at some point, there was some pushback. Right. And I'll, I will never forget, I still remember this sermon my dad did, and it was so impactful. And I think it applies to what we're talking about today. In the midst of all that, um, he brought up that some people were saying we should do hymns. Some people say saying praise songs. And then he started bringing out these hymn books and he had a whole stack. And he brought up probably about 30 different hymn books, and he put them there on the stage. And they're all Baptist hymn books, and yet they had been published over the course of a couple of hundred years. They all had different songs in them. And so he said, when you say you want to do hymns, which hymn book do you mean?" And the point was, it's not that simple of a conversation. Right? It's not, you can't boil it down to hymns or praise songs, because even when you say hymns, okay, what hymns? There's 30 hymn books just in the American Baptist Church alone, now you, you know, bring all that to a culture or a church where you have 50 different cultures. When you say hymns, do you mean African hymns, right? Asian hymns, South American hymns, and the Caribbean, the hymns that they sing and that they grew up with? Do you, are you talking to the older generation or the younger generation? Because even that experience is different. So you got a multi I think multi-generational church, and uh, there is, you know, it can be a lot of challenges in that. You know, the, the first thing I think is w- we look at it as saying we're not going to try to ignore any of those cultures. You don't want to ignore the cultures. You don't want to say, let's just, you know, represent the uh, you know, Hispanic culture. Let's just represent the African-American culture. You want to see the diversity that's in the church represented in the worship, in the music. Uh, Tony Evans says the unity embraces diversity to make a stronger whole. So if you're seeking unity, the way to find that is not to just, you know, shy away from the diversity or find that one thing. Uh, Unity actually celebrates that diversity. It celebrates what every culture is contributing. Uh, You said, you know, people have these different expectations. So I think one of the biggest things we always have to keep in mind when we're talking about different worship styles is that we must sacrifice our expectations. and we must sacrifice our own personal preferences, right? We can't go into it saying, I want my song every time. You know, I remember Pastor Rodney, uh, Rodney Wu who said, if every song we play, you love it, then we're probably doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. If you love every song, if every song we do in worship fits your style, then we're probably doing something wrong, which means if we're doing it right, if we're representing different cultures in our worship, then you're going to be uncomfortable sometime. You're going to be hearing a song you don't like sometime. But there's this pastor up in Arkansas, Mark DeMas, and he's written a lot about multi-ethnic ministry. And he's probably uh, written more about multi-ethnic ministry than most pastors in, in the nation right now. And Mark DeMas, he has this great illustration about this. He says, you know, when you're at home and it's dinner time and you call the kids for dinner and you say, come down for dinner, your daughter doesn't say, well, what is it?
1: <laughs> and you say,
2: oh, it's uh, pizza. Well, I don't like pizza. I'm staying in my room. But uh, your son, he runs in because he loves pizza. And the next night, you say, dinner time. They say, what's for dinner? He say, tonight we're eating chicken. And your son says, I don't like chicken. I'm staying in my room. And your daughter says, I love it. She comes. You don't come because it's your favorite food. You come for the time with the family around the table. And it might not be your favorite food, but your brother next to you, your sister next to you, this is their favorite meal. And so we don't come to worship for our favorite songs. We come to worship for the family time and the presence of God, and because God is worthy of worship, and you might not like that song, that might not be your style, it might not even be in your language, but your brother next to you, your sister in Christ next to you, maybe this is their favorite song, maybe this is what they grew up with, maybe this is speaking to their heart, to their culture. So I think there's a lot of just sacrificing our preferences, sacrificing our expectations, And coming back to that heart of worship that it's not about me, it's about the Lord. And let's enjoy this family time, even if I don't love that song, yeah. that style.
1: That, that's really good. You talk a lot about expectations. And I've, I've noticed, and this happens on a number of these topics that we're discussing today, right? Someone has read something or believe something, and they have a preconceived notion of what the other person ought to want. Right. And so they go, well, we ought to do this style of music or that style of music. And then when you go in and actually talk to that group that they are trying to serve, and I think their motivation is pure. I'm not saying anything about that. Mm. But our, our, all of what we do has to be in the context of relationship with others to actually know, is this me as an outside person to that group? Mm. Is this my uh, thought that they should want this? And how much of that is built in some kind of stereotype or bias? Sure. Uh, do they want this? Yeah. You know, I, I experienced this when I was uh, uh, in the Middle East. You know, in my mind, they should have music that is locally created. Now, missiologically, I I stand by that. <laughs> but when I said that idea to a bunch of Christians, I said, hey, I hear these wonderful Middle Eastern instruments. They have this little thing. It looks like a big mandolin, mm-hmm. like a, a little pluck string instrument. It's called an oud Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds kind of like plinky, like kind of like a mandolin. You know, they have this beautiful music. I said, Why don't you have worship songs like this? And this is at a language school. And she opens the door and calls out all the other teachers and starts cackling in the hallway. She's like, Listen to this idea that Brian has. And it's like, Oh, Brian's so cute. He thinks we should use. And I go, Well, what kind of music do you like? They love Hillsong. Yeah. Yeah, And and you go, well, okay, Hillsong is not written from their context. But from a different standpoint, it actually is very contextual. Egyptians are very emotional people. Hillsong is very emotional. And so it actually, that felt need in worship, it actually hits. Even though me as the outsider, I would say, no, 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 no. Hillsong is an imported thing. You shouldn't like Hillsong. Uh, Maybe they shouldn't like it for different reasons. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I see that same thing where people people, outsiders, have this expectation of like, well, what this group needs is this opportunity to whatever. And then you talk to them and they go, well, no, we actually want this other thing and and we're okay.
2: Yeah. So that probably goes into what so many of the topics we're talking about today comes back to is be willing to listen and learn and actually ask the right question, right? Uh, I got this buddy who's a missionary in Poland and he always says, uh, Don't let your observations lead to conclusions. Let your observations lead to questions. That's good. So when you observe something, instead of, yeah, making up your mind about it, well, that means this or that means that or they need this or they want that, let it lead to some better questions, you know. And, uh, you know, that's the thing is since I've been at Wilcrest, I've had two uh, minister of musics, two worship leaders, Mac Gervais and Beth Walker, and both of them have done a great job at Wilcrest. Instead of just saying, I'm going to do every music style that exists. I'm going to do every type of music that we see represented in our church culture. They have uh, equipped and empowered other leaders in our church of different ethnicities to be a part of the choir, to be a part of the band, to be a part of the praise team, to be part of the ones choosing songs even and teaching us new Mm -hmm. songs. And that's allowed us to truly get to the heart of what worship does represent that culture. And instead of me, like you said, assuming that or expecting something, as people from those cultures are part of our leadership team teaching us songs from their cultures and what does minister to their heart, uh, that gives us a chance to truly represent them Mm -hmm. well um, and to truly have a diverse, you know, uh, worship service. And, And so we're still learning. We're still growing. It's... Uh, We've had a multi-ethnic vision now at Wilcrest for nearly 30 years. Mm. And I think there's so many ways we still need to grow, so many things we're still learning. There's never going to be a day, I don't believe, where Wilcrest will sit back and say, we've arrived, we got it figured out, we solved all the problems, there'll never be another challenge uh, in this context. No, it's always challenging, it's an ongoing conversation. Same with worship, we're still learning we're still growing in that, and, uh, but God's gracious, and when people sacrifice their preferences, there's a lot of grace. There's a lot of love. There's a lot of space to grow in that, and that's what you need.
1: Yeah, you, know, you know, there's a big dialogue that's happening in our nation right now regarding uh, racial unity, and a lot of, you know, there's one camp which says, okay, as you're in, growing in this journey of learning about, uh, you know, the African-American struggle. Don't use your African-American friend as your teacher. Don't assume they'll teach you, right? Mm. Uh, in the same way that if, you know, if they're having you over for dinner, you know, you, you don't make them build the table. You know, uh, Blandon talked a little bit about this. But then there's the al- uh, alternate side of many people love to be a cultural ambassador. Sure. And so our tendency is we pick one side, typically the side that we agree with most. We go, well, this is how it ought to be done. Mm. Well, the reality is for some of my African-American friends, I know they love... Uh, being a cultural ambassador for Mm. others i know they share that other opinion and what i have to do like you said is listen and figure out which way it is rather than just kind of going in and assuming that's good okay they're the teacher or i have to go find this on my own it's well each person is different right and so you know i mean think about if we were to just look at white people right so white people in america are from all the different european countries right you know my background is french so you can't go well brian's french he must really like french music (laughs) um I love my grandfather. We've spent hours playing guitar together. We play bluegrass guitar, which comes from the Appalachian Mountains, mm. which is actually Scotch-Irish origin. Right. Uh, every now and then when I would go to his house, he'd be washing the car on a Saturday and they would have Cajun radio singing in Creole French. Wow. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean this offensively to anybody out there listening that speaks Creole French, but I can't stand it. Mm. Like that's, that's my actual heritage is the Creole French language in South Louisiana, but Creole French music? I I just want to jab my ears out. Um,
2: <laughs> I, I, I'm not real familiar with that. I might need you to sing a little no, bit. No,
1: no, no. You trust me. Uh, so so that's the thing. Like if you just made an assumption about me, and I'm just one culture that, which right. is a pretty near culture to the majority culture here. Oh sure. You would assume. Oh, I bet he really likes some good French music. Or like, oh, you're German or you're Polish. I bet you like polka. Yes. Well, maybe you're just uh, some kind of hybrid American, and you identify more with like this this melting pot than you do with a home country. Oh yeah. So we deal with the same thing with people from all over the world of course so let's let's take it a step uh, deeper for a moment Um, having so many people uh, from different backgrounds of course there's uh, lots happening in the media right now and there always have have has been Um, how do you see the challenge of racism and addressing racism and uh, teaching on racial reconciliation what does the gospel say how does this work at wilcrest because there's always something happening
2: sure yeah absolutely you know so on one side for our <laughs> nation and specifically for the christian church and i think for our church for sure uh, being a multi-church racial reconciliation is an ongoing never-ending conversation you know so on one side of it we're always going to be talking about it i mean paul was writing about racial unity 2,000 years ago,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. And so the right. the heart to see unity among the nations is biblical. And so it's an ongoing conversation. You can't preach through the Scriptures without addressing this call to unity. And so any faithful church preaching the Word of God, um, any church seeking uh, a multi-ethnic context, seeking diversity among the nations in their church, and unity among that <laughs> diversity this is going to be an ongoing conversation so even at Wilcrest you know over the last 10 years there's been so many times where uh, we've been very intentional to talk through these conversations, whether it's at a Mish retreat, uh, praying over these things, or uh, at a Mish's class that you led, where we had a diverse group up, actually doing a little panel discussion on racial reconciliation. We've had entire services where we're just repenting of racism and seeking unity among the diversity. So on one side, it's an ongoing conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the other side, I do think, even in our short history as a nation, there have been certain things that have happened where it has brought that conversation to the forefront for everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, obviously that was a reminder that we're still not there, you know, and there's still so many prayers to be prayed. Uh, When Rodney King uh, took place in the 90s, uh, when George Floyd was killed this year, you know, I think there's these certain moments in history where it's a huge reminder that we need the Lord Jesus Christ to convict us of any racism, prejudice, bias, and to rip that out of our hearts. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to bring unity among the nations, specifically within the church, and it's a reminder that only He can do it. Because left to our own devices, we've seen what man does. Uh, Our hearts are are sick and depraved and sinful, and so we're not going to come up with some sort of, man-made solution to to this challenge but i think by going to the lord he's the one who can uh, lead us to repentance from racism mm-hmm. he's the one who can bring healing to hurt this summer after george floyd uh, was killed we've had so many conversations so many times of prayer uh, whether it's in the church service or just one-on-one and small groups and uh, a couple of months ago after he was killed I had an opportunity to sort of do a little uh, discussion with about a dozen African American men in our church. Mm-hmm. And, like you said, you know, it's it just us trying to listen to one another, to learn from one another. Um, each experience, uh, each man was sharing different things, very diverse uh, views on it. But it was an awesome spirit led conversation, spirit led time of prayer. And, you know, as we're talking about these things, uh, they would share some of their own experiences where they've been on the receiving end of racism. And, you know, seeking the Lord's healing for that was such a powerful thing. And so I I believe the Lord is able to uh, lead the racist heart to repentance and uh, transform that heart. I'm also, I am also believe the Lord's able to bring healing to the one that's been on the receiving end of those hurtful things. And I know some of that pain and some of that hurt runs very deep. And it broke my heart even to hear some of the stories they were sharing. But I also know that within the church, even in a year like this, where you look at America in 2020, and the number of things right now that divide our nation seem to be, you know, catastrophic. Right. Uh, it's just this huge number of things right now that divide our nation— and even in this year, I believe you could see beautiful unity in the church, even a multi-ethnic church, because I believe the Lord is able to do that. And that's one thing we always preach at Wilcrest. We say it over and over again is we might not have anything in common. You know, our culture, we like, like you said, we like different music. We like different foods. We speak different languages. How we celebrate holidays is different. Our view of parenting is different. I mean... When you got 50 cultures, multi-generation church, man, it might seem like we hardly have anything in common. But the one thing we have in common is Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And when you look at Ephesians 4, that one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, that's enough to see unity in the church. And so it's been a powerful journey. And, And like you said, that conversation you know, it's always there—racial reconciliation, racial unity. We're always talking about it, but I do think there's something special about this year, and that I think that conversation has been brought to the forefront, and it's an opportunity for us to really uh, seek those things: the repentance, the healing, and the unity.
1: So, you know, you mentioned this this uh, prayer time that you had with these men, and that's probably for a pastor in the United States a rare uh, opportunity to be able to have that many men from various backgrounds. I mean, all, all of our African-Americans are from very different backgrounds. Mm. Um, and I would say thus form a very representative uh, kind of sounding board. And from the media, we're hearing all African-Americans think mm. this or think that. And there's this there's this narrative that's kind of being enforced and social media is reinforcing this. And if you say anything against it or question it, well, you're racist and it's, you know, your question is a sign of your racism. But I don't think that that is necessarily informed by real people. Right. You know, I'm not saying there's some grand conspiracy out there, but there is this narrative that is kind of uh, just trying to flatten any viewpoint that doesn't fit it, including the voices of African-Americans who disagree. So at Mm -hmm. that meeting, I mean, without naming names or oversharing, what would you say was kind of the spectrum of opinions of of these gentlemen?
2: Yeah. First of all, like you said, it was a very diverse group, and that's. What a what a blessing, you know. So we had about a dozen or more men uh, talking and praying through this, and in that group, first of all, it's multi generational. I think the youngest guy on, uh, with us that night was maybe twenty five, and then we had men in their mid sixties, late sixties. So it's multi generational. We had men from Sierra Leone, from Kenya, from Nigeria, from the islands. Uh, we had African-American men who had grown up in the states, but in the inner city, mm-hmm. in a very urban setting. We had men who have grown up in the rural, you know, out in the country. And so when you get that kind of diverse group, like you said, it's not going to be just, just one view, one thought, one experience right. across the board. Um, and so some, you know, this was very fresh. And this year, seeing what had happened to George Floyd— And seeing the protests, this is really uh, a fresh burden that they were carrying on their heart. Uh, For many, they needed that time of prayer. They needed to uh, talk through this. And and, um, they're praying for a great revival, great transformation for others. Uh, This year didn't give a particularly uh, refreshed or renewed burden, but it's just this constant kind of prayer that's always there Uh um others wanted to focus on some other things going on and talk about those but what was beautiful about it is as they presented different perspectives different viewpoints there was this mutual respect that they all had for one another Uh Uh, there's this mutual appreciation no one's saying well you're wrong or that's a wrong viewpoint no that's with their viewpoint that's what their experience um But it's because they're Christians. They're all brothers in Christ. And so there's this already, there's this unity, there's this love, there's this mutual respect for one another. And our time of prayer that night was so powerful uh, because of that. And so I think you're right that even if you have uh, a group of white people, a group of Hispanic people, a group of Asian people, a group of African Americans, even within that, there's still diversity of opinions and perspectives. But again, if we're brothers and sisters in Christ, I think there can be this mutual respect and grace and unity and not this prideful position of my view is the right view, but this humble, teachable spirit. And I think the Lord can honor that.
1: Right, right. So in terms of importance of issues, um, I think, again, there's diversity of opinion for for a lot of the people that we're talking with, uh, racial reconciliation, the call for justice, etc., is very raw, very fresh, very real, and is very important. And I think, you know, you and I have kind of talked offline about this, How for other people, uh, not that this is not an issue, but they might have something much more important in their own life that's actually happening to them sure. at that moment. And I think that's important for us to consider in this. You know, I, I look at a lot of the riots and, uh, or, or protests as well, and you know, in some places in particular, it, it tended to be a lot of, white people involved, mm. which I don't think is a bad thing. Mm. But again, this goes back to the, well, I feel like as an outsider of your group, you ought to think this about that. Right. And, you know, I think we have, you know, I've traveled the world enough to know we need to be very cautious when, you know, we may not understand the entire lay of the land to tell someone who's, you know, experiencing the problem in a very different way than I am, right. how they ought to be thinking, feeling, responding, etc.
2: Absolutely, And that's
1: been one of the fascinating and eye-opening things for me serving on staff here is to see how the media, the image I'm getting from the media or just even on social media, uh, when I talk to real people Mm -hmm. that I know personally, their viewpoint oftentimes is just 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And they go, ah, you know, this is just the media manipulating us or, oh, it's election year. Oh, it's this Mm -hmm. or, oh, it's that. And they attribute it to something else. Right. I, I mean, I think we would all say, you know, the deaths that we've seen this year and every year. Uh, are tragic you know there should be justice yes uh, there there should be an, an outcry yes um but i think for many people they just see a much bigger they have a layer up that that i don't have yeah oftentimes
2: yeah No, i think you're right i think you know to that so on one hand you have uh for everybody this year there's a lot going on and there's been some in our church that as i try to you know maybe start a conversation about uh, racial reconciliation or start a conversation about justice uh, for these deaths and murders, they they will engage me for a little bit, but very quickly, they need to talk about something else that's just going on in their actual mm-hmm. family. You know, they lost a loved one to COVID. Uh, someone else was about to have a baby, and that's what they want to talk about. Someone else just found out they're pregnant. That's what they want to talk about. Uh, someone else had lost their job, and that was the need on their heart. Someone mm-hmm. else was struggling uh, with their children in their home, and that's what they wanted to pray about. And so I think it's this reminder that because it's an ongoing conversation, we don't always, we we should not try to dictate when certain people have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And if there's other things going on, I think ministering to the nations, loving the nations means that we're just sharing life with them all the time. Uh, So we're sharing life with the ones that right now they're focused on having a baby and getting a new job and getting married and uh, trying to walk through COVID sickness, you know, so we're loving them and we're in that, but we're also sharing life with the ones that right now are crying out for justice and crying out for right. mercy and whose hearts are broken over what they see happening in our nation. And so I think as a church, it's not which conversation do we engage, it's all of it. You know, we we, we walk through all of this with one another because we weep with those who weep. We re- rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, Paul says, I did just share the gospel with you. I shared my very life with you. And so if we're gonna share life, I think that has to be there. Um, But then even on the second part of it, even once we do get into that conversation and you're with someone who this is their burden, how that conversation is framed can be very different. Hmm. Um, I think some people look at this and say, well, we need to be praying for is revival in the church. Others say, "What we need to be praying for is more multi-ethnic churches. Uh, Others say, "What we need to be praying for salvation of the lost. Maybe others say, no, my focus is on repentance of racism uh, within the church, within my own heart, or outside of the church, right? Others look at maybe what's going on uh, with certain police officers and say, well, we need to see reformation uh, in those kind of police officers. Others look at it and say, well, we just need justice in the courts. We need justice for these murders. You know, um, we need mercy for our nation. You know, and all of those are awesome prayers. Right. We need to be praying all of those. And I think different people within a the church will have different kind of prayer focuses, prayer burdens, whatever you call it, on their heart. You know, one thing that's really been beautiful that's come, uh, that's happening in our church right now very organically, is as some of the ladies in our church started sharing their burdens for racial reconciliation, mm-hmm. There's some women in our church that started a Bible study on it. And so they're meeting now, I think, every week. I think there's about a dozen. It's a very diverse group. They even have some ladies outside of our church from other churches, other parts of the city. And they're meeting and praying and repenting and just seeking racial reconciliation. I think it's led by two women in our church, one who's African-American and one who's white. And they're leading this Bible study together and it's a beautiful thing what's happening as these women are just having these hard conversations. But even within that group, the you know the conversation is probably different from person to person. Uh, but it it still comes back to repentance, right? Healing, uh-huh. unity, revival, uh, recognizing that we can't just be apathetic. We can't be silent. We can't be complacent. We can't see what's going on in our nation just shrug our shoulders. We have to, if we if we see what's going on in our nations, and it has to bring us to our knees one way or the other. Mm-hmm. It has to lead us to prayer, and we have to cry out for change.
1: Yeah. I've, I've been telling people who I've, I've been having the conversation with, I said, you know, for our church, we can never not have this conversation. It's an, it's an ongoing conversation for right. us. On the other hand, discipleship is more than just racial reconciliation. Right. That, that's, I would say it's an element of the gospel, and it needs to be something of discipleship. Sure. And if our hearts aren't being transformed in this area— we need to ask some tough questions. But I also see, you know, I've been here a couple of years now. You've been here longer than I have, you know, and so you have a little bit long, longer perspective. But I see where our church has been having this ongoing conversation about these things. But then when the media scales it up around a shooting, mm-hmm. which I'm not saying is wrong to scale it up around right. a shooting, but I think that creates this sense of pace mm-hmm. in people's minds of, oh, the you know, we need to also, well, yes. For us, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Right. You know, the media catches something, it's a flash in the pan, and then they're on to their next thing. Absolutely. And well, what happened to all these people that we need to cry out for justice for? Yeah. And so, you know, on the one hand, we have to talk about this issue. We can never not talk about this issue. Discipleship is more than this issue for us. On the other hand, letting the outside secular world drive the pace of our conversation means you know, we're running a, a, a marathon at a sprinter's race, and mm-hmm. we can't keep this going.
2: And I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Yeah, on one hand, man, praise God that uh, this is a conversation we're having. You know, praise God that so many people this year are right. you know right. opening their eyes and saying, okay, enough's enough. We have to pray over this. we got to be on our knees. We have to talk about this. Uh, at the same time, though, like you said, you know, Last year we were talking about this. Two years ago we were talking about this. Right. Uh, six years ago uh, I, I called our worship leader who at the time was an uh, African-American man, Haitian-American, and I called him on a Friday after a lot of things had been happening uh, that week and this conversation was at the forefront six years ago. And I said we need to you know, devote our service to this. And we changed the sermon. We changed the music. We changed everything. And that Sunday we spent that time in prayer. We spent that time in repentance. um, and we've done that several times. And so, like you said, for us, the the pace is a marathon. This is an ongoing conversation. And a year from now, we'll, we'll still be having this conversation. And not just a conversation, but a year from now, we'll still be hopefully leading out on discipleship, leading out repentance, and mm-hmm. seeking that unity. Uh, but like you said, I do think our culture is very hashtag-driven. And so our culture will get excited about something, passionate about something, burdened for something. They'll do a hashtag for it, they'll do a lot of posts on social media, and within a few months, they seem to move on to something else. And our church, if we're following the cultural pace, what's dangerous about that is that in a few months, we too would stop having this conversation. Right. It's not bad that maybe because of what's going on, we start talking about it now. What's bad is if the culture is dictating the pace, then that's going to run out. The the zeal, the passion is going to run out six months down the road or even fewer. Um, And like you said, too, if we're truly sharing life with people, not only is this an ongoing conversation, an ongoing part of discipleship, but if we're truly sharing life with people, then we're also discipling the other areas of their heart. Uh, We're also talking through what's going on in their home and their marriage and um, sins they might be struggling right. with uh, people they're trying to right. share the gospel with what's going on with their neighbors and their coworkers, and and um, so this is not the only thing going right. conversation we're having that man this is a huge part of discipleship a huge part of a multi-ethnic ministry um but we don't push pause on the other things and we'll never push pause on this. It's just all happening always at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned a number of points in the past and you've also brought up our classes for those listening to the show. If you go to our YouTube channel, YouTube forward slash nations, reaching nations, you can see some of those things he referenced. But in our classes, we've had, you know, uh, we did one on animism. We did one on global theology on urban missions. Uh, and we had one slated for this fall, yes. which we can't do because of COVID, which was on wreck rec- Racial, sorry, not racial reconciliation, reconciliation just as a broader topic, racial reconciliation being part of that. Um, But this is, you know, you mentioned when the media is done, we can't be done. Right. And so, uh, you know, I'm obviously in agreement with you on that. You know, we we still have to have this class on reconciliation. Yes. Because that applies to not just to race, but also to marriage, Mm. to parents and children, to neighbors, to, you know, this is. Part of the redemptive work of the gospel in our world is that re, uh, reconciliation uh, is happening. Okay, let's lighten it up a little bit. We, we sandwiched in the tough portion here. So yeah. uh, let's, let's look back uh, kind of to church structure in terms of leadership. Uh, obviously, uh, diverse leadership is important. Hmm. And it's also because of transience, right? You pour into someone discipling them, trying to uh, kind of shoo them for the gospel. Uh, and then they might be forced to go home or they might choose to go home or, you know, just you live in America, you can move somewhere else in America. Right. You know, so transience obviously is one of those things, but what are some of the challenges in uh, raising multi-ethnic leaders? Now, when I say leader, most people in a church think, oh, leaders, the pastor, the pastors, the staff, Mm -hmm. which that is one element of leadership, but if you think of a church, churches, Sunday school teachers and for Baptist churches, committees, uh, <laughs> the, 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 bad word committees. Yes, yes. Um, it, it's also people who are just influential leaders in terms of, they have people over and they disciple them and hmm. uh, people are listening and following them. Uh, so, you know, a leader can mean a number of things, whether it's, you know, official status or something that people just kind of right. earn into, but what are some of the challenges in uh, creating and managing multi-ethnic leaders?
2: Yeah, so I think anytime you're equipping leaders, whether you're, you know, focus on multi-ethnic leadership, just equipping leaders in general, discipleship in general is a long road, right? Greg Ogden has a book on discipleship where he says one of the reasons why a lot of people don't make disciples is one, because it's hard, and two, because it takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it does. It just takes a long time to disciple. I think about the men and women who God used to disciple me and how patient they had to be with me, especially early on in my I faith. <laughs> and they're still patient with me. Um, and it's the same way. You know, Paul even talks about not being too hasty to lay your hands on someone. Mm-hmm. And right. um, a leader shouldn't be recent converts. And so you have even these biblical guidelines that when you're equipping leaders, um, that it takes time, you know, you see uh, Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18 taking time with Apollos and really discipling him after he is already doing some ministry, but saying, no, we want to strengthen him. And so I think it takes time. It takes intentionality. And then you come back to the conversation about, okay, what about within a multi-ethnic church? And it's the same thing. It takes time. It takes intentionality, you know, when our church first adopted a multi-division back in the early 90s, uh, nearly 30 years ago, it was a completely all-almost all-Caucasian church at the time. It's predominantly white church. They adopt this multi-division and they're praying for God to uh, grow their diversity, to give unity among the diversity, to help them reach the nations that God had brought to our city, to our community. And God was faithful in that and answered those prayers but I think it was nearly 10 years before they ever ordained their first non-white deacon. Hmm. And so it took nearly 10 years to see even just a little bit of that diversity start to reach uh, some of those levels of leadership. Um, But since then, God has been really faithful to give us diverse staff members, to give us diverse Sunday school teachers, deacons, all those things. But then sometimes, like you said, coming back to that conversation about transient community, You can equip diverse leaders and uh, you're being intentional, you're being prayerful, you're putting in the years that it takes to disciple someone and then God moves them and you send out your best and you have that Acts 13 moment where you're laying hands on Paul and Barnabas, these strong teachers that you've raised up and you send them and you're joyful, but you also know, man, I'm gonna miss having her here. I'm gonna miss having him here. And so I think when you're talking about equipping diverse leadership, Um, You know, there has to be this intentionality. You can't just say, oh, because we're multi-the church, Mm -hmm. we'll naturally have multi-ethnic leadership. You have to be intentional. You have to be prayerful. You have to disciple the nations. You can't just gather the nations, right? We always say anybody can gather the nations. I go to Starbucks and I see the nations drinking coffee together. Schools are very diverse. Your workplace is very diverse. So we're not just trying to gather the nations. We're trying to um, disciple the nations. And so... Once the nations are here and you've been faithful to evangelize and you've been faithful to reach out, that great commission's there. And you're discipling, you're intentional. We we've had years here, Brian, and you and I have talked about this where um, as we've been prayerful, as we've been intentional, we look and we have such diversity in our teachers and staff. Then we've had other years where we've been pursuing that and God moves somebody or mm-hmm. God closes a door. Right. And We look and it's a little less diverse than what we would pray for. Um, But I don't get discouraged by that. One, because I trust that if we're being faithful, if we're being intentional and prayerful and all those things, then I trust that God will bring us the people he wants to lead. And at that point, you let the Lord, of course, uh, bring the staff he wants, the teachers he wants, and you trust in that. Um, And I also know that we're never going to stop being intentional in those things. And so we've had times where, you know, uh, we see someone gifted in teaching. And so we start discipling them. We start developing them. Uh, we look for opportunities for them to teach. And maybe two years later, we see that now they're teaching a class. And praise God. But it took maybe two, three years to get right. to that point. And then if a year later, that person moves, you know, <laughs> that, that's, starting over. that's very hard. That really is challenging. And so uh, I think we're always in that tension of, intentionality faithfulness discipleship prayer equipping diverse leaders and yet trusting the lord and yet sometimes the doors are closed and
1: so (laughs) so let me let me put a fine point on this yeah can a multi-ethnic church hire white people
2: yes (laughs) in fact you know just
1: (laughs) i say that being the first white person that you hired
2: (laughs) yeah you were and i think i had been at Wilcrest for almost six years when we hired you and it wasn't me saying We won't hire white people, but we were, and we are, very prayerful for diverse staff. And God was uh, blessing us in that area. And there's a time where I think we had 10 people on staff and two were white. And uh, we had uh, two or three that were Hispanic. We had some who were African-American, Asian, very diverse group. And right now our staff is less diverse, but our teachers are more diverse. Right. Our, our youth our leaders deacon body. are more diverse. Our deacons are more diverse. And so um, I think it kind of goes in waves. It goes in seasons where you see some of that leadership. Um, but we're always pursuing that and praying for that. But, yeah, uh, the previous pastor here, Rodney Wu, he, he told me a story once about a time where they were uh, seeking uh, a staff member position. And he was really praying for a non-white staff member um, but every door just seemed to be closed, and he was very faithful, very intentional to pursue uh, someone for that position that was non-white. Um, and But God kept closing the doors, and right when it seemed like there was someone who would be a great fit for that position, the Lord was leading that way, but that person was white, uh, Roddy was talking to someone in our church that wasn't white about this, and that person said, listen, what we want is God's person for mm-hmm. this position. And that gave him that freedom to... Uh, hire that person because he really did believe the Lord was leading that way. And so I think if at the end of the day, as you're being faithful, prayerful, intentional, at the end of the day, the Lord's sovereignty reigns and he'll close doors that we wanted open and he'll open other doors that we weren't even looking for.
1: Right. So I'll, I'll be honest here for a moment and just kind of kind of show my hand of cards. Um,
2: But just for a moment, just for a
1: moment. Yeah. (laughs) Then then I'm going back to (laughs) whatever it was to (laughs) (laughs) non-transparency. Um, You know when Javier, our mutual friend, who we've also sent out. So speaking of, uh, you know, bringing people up and sending them out, um, he was the one who approached me and said, "When when the my position opened up." Yeah. And I mean, I I was aware of the church beforehand. I had visited when Pastor Wu was here, and we were members for a while um, in between a a church plant, and I knew the demographics of the church. And in my mind, I said, I told him no ten times, literally ten times. I said no. I said, look, they need. They need a Latino mission pastor who speaks Spanish or they need an Asian one that maybe speaks Vietnamese or Chinese because you're right in the middle of China. You know, you need somebody that's not me. And he kept coming back. He goes, look, look at the requirements. Finally, I gave him my resume. I thought, man, I'll let them tell him no. <laughs> um, and I felt really self-conscious about, um, you know, being white and being considered. Not that I don't feel like I'm qualified. I am I grew up overseas. I'm very diverse as a person in in mm-hmm. what I eat. Uh, For those who know me, I pretty much never eat white people food, um, (laughs) which some people love and a lot of people hate, uh, (laughs) particularly when I get to choose the lunch place. And they uh, anyway, but when I got here, there were so many people, you know, I'm thinking of some of our Nigerian folks and some of our Latinos who said it kind of what you just said. Mm. Hey, we've been praying for you that that God's man would be the one that that was chosen. Yes. And it was really kind of freeing and liberating. And, you know, for whatever my opinion is worth, um, I, I see not that someone's skin color is the main issue in kind of preparing them or making them a good fit for multi-ethnic ministry. Yeah. It has much more to do with how well can they love people that are other than themselves, the other. Absolutely. And if you're from a different background or have, you know, like one one thing, you know, I talk a lot about against a lot against tokenism mm. where, you know, people are hired or we, you know, a church might hire someone or bring someone, a writing team, research team, just because they are the right color using air quotes, sure. you know, or they have the right sounding last name, right? It makes us look good because we just diversified. Um, but we're not going to let you live in your gifts and live in your culture and help inflect our team with that. Right. Um, but I see a, a much more important element being how well can someone love people that are different from them? That's because correct. I don't care what your name is, I don't care what your color is. Yeah. If you can't do that, uh, you know, even if you have the right name and the right color to meet kind of the the perception of what a multi ethnic church is, right? It, you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time.
2: Now, I think that's so great. Just to, you know, what drives us is to the fear of man or the fear of God. And when you're looking for the right perception or you just want to look a certain way to the world, of course, it's the fear of man uh, that is driving your actions and. Um, so I think, yeah, you have to be intentional. You have to pray, Lord, send us diverse leaders. Give us opportunities to disciple uh, diverse leaders. And at the same time, that doesn't mean you never hire a white person. Uh, that doesn't mean you only hire people based on their ethnicity, because um, that could be tokenism, like you're saying. And, you know, talking about your story, when God brought you to our staff, uh, what's been great s- seeing uh, since then is how you have raised up uh, leadership teams of the nations. And so I think about your missions team, your missions committee that you serve very closely with. It's a very diverse group, multi-generational, multi-ethnic. I think about the mission courses that you teach here at Wilcrest um, and who you bring in to teach those with you. you. You've raised up a group of very diverse leaders and teachers training them to teach, to use their gifts, and so I think you can't just look at uh, this one area of the church. You know, what, what does the band look like? What does the staff look like? Mm-hmm. Or what is this? Those are committee? important. Yeah, those are important. But when you look at, okay, God's brought that staff member, but who has he discipled? Who has he invested in? Who has he raised up as leaders? When you look at that, all of a sudden you see this diverse group of leaders and teachers and missionaries um, that God has raised up. And so that to me, that's the answer to prayer.
1: All right, so I'm going to close with this question. And the question is, what are three things that if you were sitting across from a young man who says, I think God's calling me to be the pastor of a multi-ethnic church, or God's calling me to to guide my church towards being multi-ethnic, mm. what are three piece of, pieces of advice you would give to him?
2: Yeah, that's great. Uh... You know, first, I would affirm him. I do think that's a biblical calling. I think that's great. You know, I wouldn't caution him away from it. I would encourage that. I would affirm that. We pray for more of that. I think when I came to Wilcrest, I read one report that said uh, 7% of churches in America are multi ethnic. Recently, I saw a number that said maybe close to 20% are multi ethnic. And I think most of those are church plants. So I would affirm that. I'm excited about that. Uh, I would encourage that. I think it's biblical. It's not driven by demographics, but by the gospel. And then we get to the three things. Only three. Only three. So one, I would say, is longevity. Right. That if this is a calling, it's going to be a long road. Um, Again, we've had the uh, multi-division at our church for nearly thirty years, and there's still challenges and prayers, and it's you know. So I'd say you have to be willing to commit to be there for a long time. Previous pastor before me, who God used to cast that multi division to start this journey, he was here for 18 years. 18 years. That's almost two decades of ministry. And so, anyone who thinks I'm just going to get in and get out or uh, start this thing and within two years, we will have arrived, you know, I think that would be very naive. <laughs> so, I would really encourage longevity. Uh, the second thing I would encourage is unity. You know, when I first came to Wilcrest, my first time to ever sit with the staff, we read through Ephesians 4, and I told our staff then, not knowing what the next 10 years would bring, that we need to tattoo that verse, preserve the unity on our hearts. And that's what I would tell the, this church planner. It would say, you have to preserve the unity. Uh, it's going to be a constant prayer, a constant battle, um, not against the church members, but a battle against the evil one who would try to divide the church. Um, a battle against the enemy, right? It's a spiritual warfare going on. And so you have to go into saying, I'm in it for the long haul, and we are going to seek unity. We're going to preserve unity. And then the last word I would say would just be faithful. And I know I'm kind of cheating because that gives me a few sub points to that third thing. (laughs) But I would say be faithful. And specifically, I'd say three things. Be faithful to the Great Commission, right? Because... Uh, Like Eric Mason said, it's not a model or a mission, but it's the multi-ethnic ministry or diversity that's a byproduct of simply being faithful to the mission. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to multi-ethnic church, you better be a great commission church. You gotta be making disciples of the nations. Secondly, I'd say you have to share life with those nations. Um, break bread with them. Be in their home. Have them in your home. Actually develop friendships with the nations. Have a diverse group of friends. And uh, you know, that's your family now. And So you have to be faithful to the Great Commission. You gotta be faithful to sharing life and breaking bread together. And then to our last conversation, and you have to be faithful to equip diverse leaders. You know, you have to be intentional in that you have to sit with them, uh, see what their spiritual gifts are, give them those opportunities to serve and to teach and to lead, and truly develop a diverse group of leaders in the church. So, uh, yeah, longevity, unity, and faithfulness.
1: Those are three uh, good pieces of advice. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the yeah. show. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. This is great.
0: Thank you for listening to Nations Reaching Nations. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Nation Reaching Nation.